0: Job 19, this morning, we'll begin by considering verses 7 through 12. Job chapter 19, verse 7, this is Job's lament. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me. And encamp around my tent. In his commentary on the book of Job. John Hartley says this about chapter 19. That in this chapter Job feels the full brunt of God's hostility. To Job, God has let his anger burn hotly against him and has poured it on him in great measure as though he regards Job as one of his enemies. And that's why, in Job's mind, God has marshaled his troops to advance in columns against Job. As though besieging a walled city, the army surrounds Job's tent to shut off all access. Then in the most vulnerable spot, they build a siege ramp in order to breach the wall. And so by referring to himself here as a tent rather than a city, Job focuses on the brutality of God's attack. And with this hyperbole, Job expresses his utter astonishment that God would treat him so roughly. Christopher Ash outlines Job 19 in two parts. Verses 1 to 12 can be summarized as, God has attacked me unfairly. And verses 13 to 22, God has isolated me cruelly. We have seen over the last couple months heartbreak Job has suffered. His family, his reputation, his estate, his health. But I believe the most agonizing pain of all is that he feels as though God has abandoned him and become his enemy. And I ask you this morning, can a mortal fight such an enemy? If this were true, that God was an enemy of Job, with with his limitations and his weaknesses, is there any way in the world that Job can fight against the infinite God? I ask you this morning, can man contend with God? Can man contend with God? In Job 10, verse 2, Job says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. This is the mismatch of generations. Often when we talk about an underdog match, We go to David versus Goliath. But I submit to you that a much greater chasm exists between God and man. Holy, awesome, infinite God versus man of dust. If this was truly a match, there would be no contest. But this is how Job feels. And perhaps you have also felt at times in your life, especially when you go through turmoil and suffering, and it seems like one closed door after another, that maybe God counts you as his adversary, as his enemy, as someone he's contending with. Can you contend with God? That is the question I seek to address today. And so let us ask the author of this inspired text for his help. Father, We know this is a very difficult topic, but it is raised here in your inspired text. And so give us the Holy Spirit that we may understand it and apply it for your honor and glory. Amen. Before and after. If you're like me, you get very nostalgic. I love nostalgia. I can talk for hours on 90s trivia and sitcoms, playing stickball in the schoolyard, Saturday morning cartoons, and a walk around my childhood town of Bayonne, New Jersey. If I ever go with you to Bayonne, I will point out every building and tell you the history behind it. I love nostalgia. And why do some people love nostalgia? Because nostalgia brings back happy memories. Even though bad things happened years ago, we often drown those things out and we just think about the good times. We long for the past, where it seems like things were easier and better. Perhaps this is why the song written by Paul McCartney, Yesterday, has received more cover versions than any other song in history. 3,000 versions of this song, where Paul McCartney sings, Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Well, Job himself had some nostalgia. In chapter 29, verses 2 to 5, as Job is lamenting what life has become, he says this, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when His lamp shone upon my head, by His light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. You see the contrast here versus the text where we opened. In the text where we opened the sermon, in chapter 19, Job says that God's troops are coming against his tent. But here, as he's reminiscing and waxing nostalgic about the days of old, he says, there was a time when the friendship of God was on my tent. Job was longing for better times, were prosperous times, happier times, times when his family was around And everything he knew and loved was all around him. But I want you to notice what it is that Job attributes to what made those days so blessed. Not just the family. Not just the reputation or the health. He says in verse 29, it was the friendship of God. This is what Job believed was the reason for his prosperity. Because he was friends with God. He was under the good graces of God. And this is a very typical Old Testament understanding. In the Old Testament, the saints of old, as we've mentioned before, would see their prosperity and their health and their growth as a sign of God's friendship upon them. God's smile, God's graces. You've heard us end the service many times with this benediction. The ironic blessing from number 6 where you bow your heads for the benediction, and we say the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, that's his smile, upon you and give you peace. And so the results of all that might be big family, good health, lots of crops, lots of cattle, victory in war, but the basis of that was God's good graces, God's smile, God's light, God's friendship. And Job longed for the days where he felt that friendship of God upon him and his tent. Richard Belcher said the most important thing was that Job experienced the friendship of God that was demonstrated in the presence of God in his life. And so the message that Job believed and his friends believed this, that material and physical blessings were a result of a proper relationship with God. Material and physical blessings are a result of a proper relationship with God. This is like the retribution principle that I mentioned a few weeks ago, but sort of the opposite. If you're suffering, it's because God is angry at your sin. And if you're doing well, it's because God is happy with you. And this is the paradigm that Job and his friends saw the world through. Now, there's something true about that statement but there's also something misleading about that statement. What's true about this statement, that material and physical blessings are a result of the proper, a proper relationship with God, is that it gives God the glory for all good things. As the New Testament tells us, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Your house, your car, your finances, your job, your family, they were given to you. They're on loan from God. They're a gift and the God who causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine upon just or unjust is the one who graciously gives us all things. There is nothing that you have that you're not borrowing from God. And so there's, there's embedded in this idea a sense of thankfulness to God, a sense of giving God glory, a sense of allowing the truth of God's ownership to take precedence in our lives. That every material and physical blessing you have is from God. But this statement is also misleading. It falls short. Because embedded in this statement, that retribution principle, there is an assumption that suffering must be a result of God turning his back. Because if this is worked out as a mathematical equation, physical and material blessing means God's happy with me, then therefore, if I lack physical and material blessing, God must be my enemy, And this is not true. But this is how Job felt. He couldn't understand it. If God is just, and if Job was righteous, and if Job feared God and sacrificed to God and confessed to God, he was faithful to his wife, he took in orphans, he turned away from evil, then how could the opposite of this be true? If I have a friendship with God, Job is thinking... Everything should go well. And now that I've been suffering so tremendously, it must mean that God counts me as his enemy. And therefore, we have this contention all throughout the book of Job, a contention. You know when things are contentious between you and someone else? There's something between you. There's animosity. You can kind of feel it. You can cut it with a knife. In Job 9, verse 3, if one wishes to contend with him, One could not answer him once in a thousand times. Job 10, verse 2, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Job 13, 24, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? And then Job 33, 10 through 11, behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Do you see Job's heart? Not only is he confused as to why this is happening, he's becoming convinced that God Almighty is contending with him, man of dust. And if that's the case, you ask the question, to contend or not to contend? Should we argue our case with God? Should we fight back? Do we stand a chance? Job is very torn. Job believes on one hand that he has a really good case. His case, if it were brought before God, should vindicate him and justify him because at the end of the day, he cannot see that there's any one sin that he committed that God would be punishing him for. But on the other hand, Job is convinced that it's kind of a worthless pursuit. There's no mediator. God's not going to listen to me. What's the point? And when you read some of what Job is saying, it's almost like he's pacing. You know, you're pacing outside someone's office. I'm going to go in there, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind, but I'm not sure they're going to listen to me, so maybe I'll just forget it. Well, maybe if I go in there, I know I have a good case, but I don't know if they're going to listen to me. And this is what we find in Job, back and forth, back and forth. On one hand, he knows God is just, and what's going to him seems like injustice. So if I could just talk to him, but I really can't talk to him because there's no one to intercede for us. But, but yet I know my Redeemer lives, but he's God and no one can stand against God. But maybe he won't listen in the full might of his power. Maybe he'll come and speak to me and deal with me gently. And on and on, Job is just wrestling with truth after truth after truth and he can't figure out how they fit. And so in verse... Three of chapter 13, he says, I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. Job wants to contend. He wants to. But then a few chapters later, in verse 23, chapter 23, he says, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. So in this passage, Job seems to think there's a chance. There's a chance that God won't, he won't speak to me in the power of his might. Because if if God was speaking to me in the power of his might, I can't stand. No one can see God and live. So maybe God would pay attention to me. Maybe he he would speak to me. And if he could just listen, I'll be acquitted. And then later in the book, God himself says this, in chapter 40, verse 2. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job had been accusing God this whole time throughout the passages of Scripture of contending with him. But as we get to the end of the book of Job and God speaks out of the whirlwind, he turns the tables. You want to contend with me? You Want to argue with me? Let me hear what you have to say. For Job, it is time for a yes or no answer. Now, I think as we have that scene playing forth before us, it's helpful for us to get a background of what all the Scripture says about the relationship between God and man. Man's relationship with God according to the Bible. Because the truth is, No matter what this world says is that which makes you popular or cool or worth it, your relationship with God is the most important thing about you. Your relationship with God is the most important thing about you. Just by virtue of being a human being, you are an image bearer of God. You bear the image of the Almighty Creator. And as such, you and all other human beings, including the unborn, are worthy of dignity and respect. But, man is a fallen creature. And because we're fallen, we are separated from God. We fall short of God's glory. We are, by nature, sinners. There really are only two options in this world. You are either an enemy of God or a friend of God. And I ask you this morning, what is your relationship with your creator? Is it contentious? Is it adversarial? Or is it friendly? And perhaps... You've been brought into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but even this very moment in your life, you are going through some trials and you're asking, just like Job, though maybe you won't say it out loud, is what, hap- what is happening to me a result of falling out of good grace with God? Is God angry at me? Am I God's enemy? Is God contending with me? We all know that awful feeling of contention. Maybe with a family member or a coworker. You know what it's like to have an unsettled fight and that person shows up to work or at a family gathering and you just can't bear to look at them. You say, there's something between us. Well, why do we say something between us when there's like literally nothing physical, right? But you know it's awkward. You can cut the tension with a knife. And so it seems between God and Job and so it is even more broadly between sinful man and holy God. The Bible even tells us in Romans 8 verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. That is in our sinful nature we are rebels. As R.C. Sproul famously said, sin is cosmic treason. Treason. By nature, we are lawbreakers. We have committed sins. We have transgressed the law of a holy, holy, holy God, the king of this universe. And so we're born into this world as natural-born enemies of God. Jesus even said, you are of your father the devil. As sinners, no matter which sin it is that you are idolizing in your life, whether it be adultery or false witness or anger and murderous thoughts, no matter which one it is or how many there are, we have put ourselves on the throne of our hearts, a place where God belongs. We have violated God's laws. We have fallen short of his glory. And as the prophet Isaiah says, our sins have separated us between God and man. And so yes, there is a natural hostility between God and man. There is no greater separation, even greater, as I said, between David and Goliath, between holy God and sinful man. And I ask, if if that's you and you've never been converted, do you really want to fight with God Almighty, the one whom the Bible says no one can see and live? God is infinitely perfect. He created the world with his words. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He is the God who rules the seas, the God who made the stars. He created the universe. He controls Leviathan. He is sovereign. Can you really contend against this God? Listen, I know that this is it's a dark message. It's a dark message today. Because the truth is, if God is our enemy... We are hopeless. We can expect nothing but wrath and condemnation. The full weight of eternal justice is not something that any of us can bear. This is the state of man as a sinner before a holy God. There is enmity between God and man. There are people in your life I am sure that you have, whether intentionally or not wronged, And you have borne their ire and their frustration and their annoyance and their wrath. Or perhaps you've been in trouble with the law and you've suffered the consequences of the law, man's law. But nothing can prepare us for the weight of eternal justice, having committed cosmic treason against the King of Kings. You do not want to contend with God Almighty. But I'm not going to leave you there this morning. We need to see our hopelessness so that we can greater appreciate our hope. We need to understand the darkness so that when the light of the gospel shines through, it will do nothing but result in praise and worship. There is hope, brothers and sisters. But the hope is not that somehow, in some way, you can bridge the gap between you and God by your own efforts. The hope is not that you can sort, sort of bribe God to just be your friend and turn away his wrath. The point of this hopelessness is that there is nothing we can do to make God our friend. Everything rests on God doing his part. And though he is not under obligation to save any of us, Thank God, in love, He chooses to do so. Because even though we are sinners by nature, as we sang about it already today, God is the one who befriends sinners. He is the God who befriends sinners. Let me ask you this. Are you a sinner? If you are, praise the Lord. He befriends people like you. And you can't say, but I, you know, pastor, you just said I'm a rebel and I'm, yeah, this is all true. You are a rebel, so am I. You committed treason. Yes, I did too. You were dead in your sins. Absolutely. Sin is wickedness against God. But God loves the world in such a way that he gave his only son for whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God must make the first move. God takes initiative because God is justice, yes, but he is also love. God is love and he loves sinners. He loves lawbreakers. People that don't deserve it are given his good graces. That's why grace is called grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. He is the God who befriends sinners. And even though we we will find this most uh, fully explained in the New Testament, there are glimmers of this right here in the book of Job. Back in chapter 1, what does the narrator, the inspired narrator, say about Job? He says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, as I said before, When the Bible says that Job, just like Noah, was blameless and righteous and so on, that that is because God counts them as such. It doesn't mean they were perfect in the sense that they've never sinned. All men are sinners. But as we learn later in Job, he confesses his sins. He keeps short accounts with God. Job is a human being like you and me. He is a sinner by nature. He is merely a mortal. But how does God describe him? He describes him... As blameless, upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil. What this means is that Job had a heart toward God. Job's heart was bent toward God. As Eric Ortland says in his book, Suffering Wisely and Well, when the narrator says this, this is an Old Testament way of saying that Job had every virtue necessary for a wonderful relationship with God. When you read Job chapter 1, we're not just talking about some goody two-shoes here. Job had a friendship with God and it colored everything that he did. The Old Testament uses this phrase, fear God. Fear God as relational language. Obedience is a manifestation of a heart that is bent toward God. Job loved God. That's what Job 1.1 is saying. And God counted Job righteous. Just like Abraham was a sinner, but the Bible says he believed God and God counted it to him as righteous. Or Noah was found grace in the eyes of God. Job found grace in the eyes of God and God counted him as righteous. Job loved God. God loved Job. Job referred God, I'm sorry, referred to Job as his righteous servant. After Satan or, or when Satan came to the Lord, God said to him, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. See, Job doesn't know this yet, but we do because we get a sneak, we get a behind the scenes look, right? How does God see Job? God sees Job as a friend. Job's heart is bent toward God. God's heart is bent toward Job. Biblically speaking, friendship contains three elements. Association, loyalty, and affection. Association, loyalty, and affection. God was associating himself with Job. My servant Job. He fears me. Loyalty. God was loyal to Job. He keeps him to the end. That's a spoiler for the end of the book, but many of you know it. God keeps Job to the end. He's loyal to Job. Yes, he allows Satan to come after him, but God prescribes the limits. He's with Job every step of the way. He's loyal to him. And then affection. Job, God does have a heart for Job. And I believe that what God says about his people all throughout the Old Testament applies to Job as well. That God rejoices over him with loud singing. Job is the apple of his eye, a peculiar people, a chosen people. As we read in the opening, opening a call to worship today, God was jealous for Job. God is friends with Job. Friendship, association, loyalty, affection. And that's what's going on behind the scenes. And here's what you need to understand, brother or sister. If you are a friend of God, and you're going through trials and suffering, Satan's attacks on you do not change your relationship to God. Satan's attacks on you do not change your relationship with God. Satan's attacks on Job did not take away God's friendship with Job. That's what Job thought. And maybe he had reasons to think that. But the answer is no. God did not become an enemy of Job. Satan is the true enemy. The accuser is the enemy. Just, just by way of, of Comparison. Hope this is helpful. Look at Satan versus God here. Satan's the true enemy. I know the font is kind of small, but on one hand, Satan, the enemy, he questions Job's motives, right? He says, Does Job fear God for no reason? See, God and Satan are both looking at the same guy. He fears God, he sacrifices for his children, he brings in orphans, he makes covenants with his eyes. He's a good guy, but God believes he fears him sincerely. uh, Satan believes that Job fears God just because God gives him stuff. Satan is the enemy. Satan impugns Job's motives and intentions. He thinks Job is fake. And God is out to prove that Job is the real deal. God, the friend, affirms the best of Job's motives. He says that he is one who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan, the enemy, doesn't put any trust in Job. He predicts the failure of Job's faith. He tells God, stretch out your hand, and he will curse you. Satan doesn't hold out any hope for Job. Satan's trying to attack Job, to reveal him as a fraud. But what does God do? God celebrates the integrity of Job. After the first round of suffering, what does God say to Satan? He says, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Do you see how Satan is against Job, but God is for Job? And the suffering that he goes through doesn't change that relationship at all. Satan, the enemy, attempts to take everything away from Job. The Bible says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Take everything away. What does God do with Job at the end? He restores everything to Job. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. The difference between the accuser and God is that the accuser, Satan, wanted Job to fail, but God wanted Job to succeed. Satan did everything in his power to try to get Job to fail, but God preserved Job through the most intense suffering by his power because God was a friend to Job. He was loyal to him even through the darkest of times. God was his friend. Now this comes to full fruition then in the gospel. See, Job does this to us every week. It brings us almost there, but then we open the New Testament and we see the full picture of how God befriends sinners. And I want to dwell for just a few moments then on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who reveals to us that indeed God is the one who befriends sinners. Jesus is a friend to us. See, sometimes in life, we don't understand why someone would stir our nest, but it's ultimately for our good. Think about children who don't understand in the moment why their parents would discipline them, or athletes who may not always understand the tactics of their coaches. Just imagine for a moment a team of of adolescent baseball players, and every day in practice, they're doing the same arduous drills over and over and over to the point where they start wondering, does our coach even care? Why is he always making us do this? This is hard. This is boring. This is tiring. And it's only later in the baseball season when the team starts winning more and the boys are able to withstand the long games under the hot sun and the onslaught of the opposing team, then they finally understand That though they didn't understand the coach's tactics, they understand his heart. That all along, the coach was invested in their victory. And while you endure trials as a child of God, and you struggle to make sense, and you say to to your Lord, this seems unfair, unjust, even cruel. Have I become your enemy? Are you contending with me? The Lord understands your frame. And it's the truth about who we know God is that helps us to endure. God is for his people. He is a father to his children. He is invested in our victory. Thessalonians tells us that this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he wants to put the real enemy to shame. God Almighty, the thrice Holy God is under no obligation to extend mercy to sinners like me and you. But The Bible tells us that he is love. He doesn't ignore us. He pursues us. He binds us with cords of love. He forgives us of our sins. He resurrects us from death in sin. He is the God who befriends sinners. and I am thankful for his grace. And that grace is most fully manifest in the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. What a friend for sinners. The lover of our soul. What do we learn about Christ as we examine? I want to just leave you with three things here. That Christ makes us friends of God by satisfying God's wrath and reconciling us to Him. Christ demonstrates God's friendship through his sacrificial love and Christ perpetuates God's friendship through his ongoing mediation. Now, I know that's kind of a mouthful. I really wrestled with how can I word this in a more succinct way. But here's the point, brothers and sisters. God makes us friends with God. Christ makes us friends with God. Christ demonstrates friendship and Christ continues that friendship. If you are not sure If God is your friend, if he's on your side, look to Christ. First, Christ makes us friends of God by satisfying God's wrath and reconciling us to him. The truth is, we are born into this world as children of wrath. In the same chapter of the Gospel of John, where we find verse 16, for God so loved the world, we also find verse 36 where it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise God, right? But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news, but I must preach the bad news, which is that as sinners, the wrath of God abides on us. Something must satisfy that wrath. Something must take away that wrath. That that animosity and hostility between God and man has to be canceled in order for us to have a relationship with God. Enter Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, comes into this world to become for us the satisfaction of God's wrath. It says in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you haven't heard us talk about this word before, learn it, love it, treasure it. Propitiation. Satisfaction of anger. Satisfaction of wrath. God's wrath that was justly residing on us because we've committed cosmic treason against Him was now given to another in our place. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God for believers like you and me, for sinners like you and me. Just like we sang before the sermon, the wrath of God that I deserved was poured out on the innocent. He was given that fatal blow He absorbed God's wrath. And why? Not because we deserved it. Because of God's love. In this is love. There's no greater love than this. Is God on your side? You say, I don't know. I'm going through a tough time. Is God on your side? Look to the cross where the animosity was canceled. The hostility wiped away. Your sins forgiven because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Because of his sacrifice, dying on the cross, and three days later, rising triumphantly from the grave, those of us who believe in him were once his enemies, but now seated at his table. We are friends of God. But Jesus doesn't just make us friends of God. Jesus also demonstrates God's friendship. He demonstrates God's friendship through his sacrificial love, his entire ministry. He says, Greater love has no one than this. That someone laid down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For that, all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You are a friend if you believe in Christ. A friend of the Messiah. A friend of the risen King. A friend. He also says, in Matthew 11, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Because of Jesus' sacrificial love, he put himself in situations to seek and save the lost, where he would be surrounded by sinners, by prostitutes, by tax collectors, by those who were hated in society. He didn't even care if people accused him as he was eating with them and drinking with them. Of You're a glutton, you're a drunkard. Why? Because he is, Jesus, friend of sinners. Thank God he is friend of sinners. Jesus is the friend of tax collectors. He's the friend of gluttons and drunkards. He's the friend of porn addicts. He's the friend of those who can't control their temper. He's the friend of the apathetic. He is a friend to idolaters. Are you saying he approves these things? No. He's a friend in the sense that he bears the punishment for their sins. And if he did not do that for us, we would be without hope. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and he demonstrates that by dying on the cross and by associating with the lowly and with the sinful like us. So he makes us friends of God. He demonstrates God's friendship. And finally, Jesus perpetuates or continues God's friendship through his ongoing mediation. We often don't think about this because when we preach the gospel, we highlight, of course, the cross and then the resurrection we must not forget the ascension. Jesus is ascended into heaven. And what is he doing? The Bible tells us in Hebrews seven twenty five, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What that means is that even this very moment in whatever trial you are enduring right now, Your best friend, your Savior, is praying for you. He's mediating, interceding, fighting for you. His ongoing mediation. You know, this was demonstrated in the life of Peter. In the life of Peter, I don't have it, it seems, on the slides, but you might remember when Jesus spoke with Peter towards the end of or right before he went to the cross, and he he told Peter, Satan desired to have you. Does that sound familiar? Satan desired to have you? Sounds a lot like Job chapter 1, right? Satan desired to test Job and the authenticity of his faith. And you fast forward to the New Testament, and here comes Peter, a type of Job in this case, and Jesus, knowing what's going on in the cosmic court of heaven, Says to Peter, Satan desires to have you. And Jesus doesn't say, but I stopped him. He could do that, right? He could just say, Satan desired to have you, but I I put an end to that. He could do that in the snap of a finger. But instead, what Jesus does with Peter is kind of similar to what God in the Old Testament does with Job. Remember, Jesus is God. The God of Job is Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't say, I stopped Satan from attacking you. He says, Satan desired to have you, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And then he says, remember, friendship is believing the best, rooting for victory. He says, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. In other words, Jesus knows, because he's God, that Peter will not pass the test in the beginning. He will deny the Lord three times. But Jesus is also telling Peter, I'm not going to give up on you. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. He's giving him orders for after he fails. Because as we sang about earlier, He will keep me to the end. And a true friend not only associates, but is loyal. Jesus is loyal. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What a friend we have in Jesus. He is praying for us. And just because we're going through trials does not make him our enemy. In the 1800s, Robert Murray McChain said this. Perhaps you've heard this quote If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I will not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Christ is praying for you, even now. What a friend we have in Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, I leave you with an application. Remind yourself daily of your standing with God. If it is true that there's only two options, either you are an enemy of God or a friend of God, make sure you know which side you're on and remind yourself of that every single day. As Paul says in Romans eight thirty one to 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who could be against us? Even Satan himself, with all the arrows and darts, cannot compare to God Almighty. Yes, we asked the question in the beginning of today's message can man contend with God? We know the answer is no, man can't contend with God. You know who else can't contend with God? Satan. He can beat us, he's more powerful than us but if God is on your side, look out, Satan. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Can a dictator be against us? Can the government be against us? Can an atheist be against us? No. We must know who the real enemy is. So encourage yourself in this, brothers and sisters. And let me make one last plea to those who are not friends of God. If you have not come to Christ, that I have to say, based on Scripture, that you are an enemy of God. The wrath of God does abide on you, and the eternal consequences of that far outweigh any amount of suffering in this short life. So I say to you what God says throughout the Bible, repent, come to Christ, believe upon Him, and you shall be saved. You will be reconciled to God. The animosity will be killed Your being at odds with God will be changed into being one with God. But I want to encourage those who are in Christ. That is, you know that you're a believer, you follow the Lord, your sins are forgiven, but frankly you struggle with your relationship with God. You don't know if he's for you or against you because of whatever is on your plate right now. And like Job, you wonder, are you contending with me? Have you turned your back on me? I want you to know your relationship with God does not change because of persecution or satanic attack or any amount of suffering. He is still for you. He is your eternal father. He is invested in your victory. He is jealous for you. He has affection for you. He is loyal to you. He is your friend. And I ask you, do you believe this? You have peace with God Almighty. And if He is for you, who can be against you? In the 1700s, William Cowper wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And one of the lines from that song says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, we may not always see that smiling face, but we walk by faith and not by sight. So if you're looking at your circumstances, of course you might be discouraged, but look at the scriptures. Look to Christ. Look at the promises that he gives you in Christ over and over that your sins are as gone as east is from the west. That he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That greater love has no one than this. That he would lay down his life for his enemies. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we have been accepted in the beloved. And I can go on and on. What are those gospel promises you need to claim for yourself every day to ward off that temptation that you think God is against you? Cowper wrote these words about the smiling face. You know, his mother died at the age of six. That same year, his father sent him off to boarding school, and he wasn't saved until his mid 20s. He was saved in an insane asylum of all places. And even after experiencing saving faith in Christ, he continued to struggle deeply with depression, attempting suicide multiple times. Then he met a friend, a loyal friend, the author of Amazing Grace, John Newton. John Newton came into William Cowper's life as a faithful under-shepherd who counseled and encouraged Cowper through the remainder of his life. And Cowper benefited greatly from his ministry. And I just want to say by way of application, if we have been made friends with God, then guess what? We are friends with each other. Like it or not, everyone in this room who's a blood-bought believer, every Christian who is a true child of God, is your friend. Are we treating them Thusly, the strength to treat each other as friends comes from our friendship with God. Brothers and sisters, sometimes the providence of God seems like a frown. But as Cowper wrote, there is a smile behind it all. We may not always understand. We don't see the future. But believing in the promises of God's word, we know who we are. We have been bought with a price, redeemed by the blood, reconciled to God. God, our creator, our shepherd, our savior, our friend. Hallelujah. What a savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Saving, keeping, helping, loving. He is with us to the end. Amen.